For scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19. It's Daniel 9, verses 1 to 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he has spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing us upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sinned, and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteous nut righteousness but because of your great mercy O lord hear O lord forgive O lord pay attention and act delay not for your own sake O my god because your city and your people are called by your name our sermon this morning is from first timothy chapter 6 verses 3 through 5 but I'd just like to make a comment on this, this reading from Daniel 9. We, we really see God's heart 
evident in Daniel as he prays for his people, as he intercedes to God and acknowledges their sin and, and begs for God's mercy to be present on, on their lives. And as we look at this, this passage today, it, it's a somewhat of a difficult passage as well, but it, it also reminds us that, that we too tend to be people who sin, and we also need God's mercy to walk in his ways. If you've been paying attention to my sermons over the last two years, you know that we've been looking at, at this book of First Timothy. And if you've been paying even better attention, you'll know what the theme and the setting of this letter is. But for the one person here who hasn't been paying attention, and for those who haven't been here, I'll review it again briefly. And it's particularly pertinent because this passage today reiterates the theme that is present throughout the entire book. But let's first read the text, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And again, depending on your version of the Bible, the last phrase of verse 2 is put in the paragraph there, and I'll include that in the reading. It says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This passage basically summarizes the entire letter to Timothy, his concern in writing was to correct errors that had arisen in the church in Ephesus. And this was a church that Paul had started probably about 10 years earlier. And he had lived here for three years at one point teaching the gospel, as we see in Acts 20. And Paul is addressing particular problems that have arisen in the church since that time. And he's left Timothy here to deal with these problems. And we saw back in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that, that Paul had visited the church here, and, and so he was aware of what was going on. But he had left Timothy here as his, as his uh, emissary to, to continue working on some of these issues. And the title that, that's in your bulletin is, is Nine Marks of Worldliness, somewhat tongue-in-cheek with, with another nine marks that we might be familiar with. But I hope to end up telling you not so much about focusing on these marks, but how we might avoid getting to this place or experiencing this in our church. But there's, there's nine different descriptions of the kinds of sin that, that's evident in the lives of those who don't teach the truth or live by the truth. And it depends kind of how you number it, but this is what I come up with. Number one is puffed up with conceit. Two, understands nothing. Three, unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. Four, envy. Five, dissension. Six, slander. Seven, evil suspicions. Eight, constant friction. Nine, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is a pretty messy list. And being what I like to consider a logical thinker, I, I try to put some of these things into categories. And so I summarize this list into three categories, which I call attitude, wisdom, and motivation. 
He describes the ungodly teacher as one who has an attitude that is awry, a wisdom that is worldly, and a motivation that is mistaken. And he clearly lays out two different ideas, two different camps that one might find themselves in, that the church might live in. It's an either-or situation. You're either on, on one side or on the other side. And it's not just a matter of preference or what feels right that determines which side you should be on. It's a matter of truth and a matter of holiness. And the person who wants to be on God's side must be aware of the dangers and the downfall of false teachers. And in several places throughout this book, and and indeed throughout many of his other letters, Paul attacks the false teachers who sought to influence the church and draw it away from the good news of the kingdom. And that danger has not changed for us today. This isn't just a problem that existed in the Bible times. And I believe that the biggest challenge to the gospel for us today and for our children is not the secularists or the atheists or Islam or any other thing that, that directly opposes Jesus. It's those people and, and teachers within the church that seek to corrupt the clear teaching of the gospel. And unless we value and defend the authority of the written word of God above all other authority, we too will be at risk for accepting another doctrine. And in our last sermon, we looked here at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, and and verse 2 ends with this phrase, teach and urge these things. And it's not entirely clear if he's talking about specifically the things in verses 1 and 2, or or if he's referring more generally to to everything that's in the book. But I I tend to believe that by what what follows in verse 3, that that he's, he's maintaining his flow of thought and, and um, referring to the broader set of teachings. So I'm going to look briefly at, at these words from, from verse 2, that the teach and urge. This word teach is a common word used in the New Testament, and most of the time it's, it's translated teach. So it's fairly direct meaning. It just means to impart instruction. And that's what Jesus did in his ministry. He was a teacher. He taught in the synagogues. He taught in the temple. He taught in the villages. He taught beside the sea. He taught his disciples. The Gospels describe all of these ways that Jesus taught. So it's no surprise that after the Pentecost, the apostles continued his example and his command from the Great Commission by teaching about Jesus in Jerusalem and abroad, even though it resulted in their persecution. And the point is is that it matters what you know. It matters what you understand. We grow in knowledge and in understanding through teaching. Romans 10.14 says, How are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? So if we hope to call people to follow Christ, it will be because they have been taught about him, because they know that they are sinners and that Jesus is our Redeemer. So it is the duty of the church to teach. And the leaders of the church must be dedicated to teaching the word of God. The people of the church must be dedicated to understanding the word of God and understanding how it shapes their lives. And the families of the church must be dedicated to teaching their children about the truth. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline 
and instruction of the Lord. So we are to be teachers. We are to be teaching about God's word. But in addition to this word teach, he instructs Timothy to urge these things. And this word is, is translated several different ways throughout the New Testament, which um, helps us understand it better. The, the other ways this word is, is translated is appeal or beg, encourage, comfort, invite, or implore. And it's the same word that the prodigal son, when he came back um, to his, to his um, father and the older son was outside and didn't want to come to the party, the father came outside and urged the older son to come into the party. He was inviting them. He was calling him. So it's, it's one thing to teach my children about the laws of physics and explain the, the laws of motion and energy. But I will urge them not to play on the road or, or jump off the roof to, so that they don't experience the negative effects about these laws of physics. And it, actually, when they're, when they're very young, we don't even bother teaching them. We just urge them to avoid these dangers. But as they grow up and as they mature, we teach them about the dangers so they can understand why they shouldn't do this. And so sometimes we teach, sometimes we urge, but it's all for the, the growth and the maturity of the church. So how does Paul describe the teaching that should be taught in the church? He, he doesn't speak to it directly in this passage, but he, he does it by way of implication in verse 3 by telling us what a false teacher's doctrine does not agree with. So by implication, true teaching would be that which agrees with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And so he sets this up to contrast with the description that follows. And he uses an analogy that, that I found interesting. He uses a medical analogy in this section. There's a healthy way and an unhealthy way. And you might see the word unhealthy in the text, but the word healthy is found in the word sound in verse 3. This word sound implies to be healthy or well. And it comes from the same root word as hygiene. And we see it, um, the next verse, the word that's translated unhealthy craving, which is the opposite. Another translation Translate that translates to unhealthy craving as a sick interest. So on the one hand, we have the, the sound words, that the wholesome, healthy, well, logos of Christ, his, his words, his person, his gospel, that's all encompassed in, in this word logos, along with the teaching or instruction that accords with godliness, that promotes godliness, it promotes the right way of living. And then on the other hand, we have the unhealthy teaching, the teaching that is diseased, that is ill, that does not result in the wholeness and the soundness and the fullness of the person of God. And so I found it interesting to, to look at this healthy-unhealthy dichotomy, and, and we understand that in, in many different areas of life. And so we were at, at Wood Grill the other evening with, with a number of you, and that's really an opportunity to, to put this to practice. And I, I didn't see anybody starting with the dessert bar and just filling up on ice cream for the evening. 
And we know it's unhealthy to, to fill up on unrefined sugars. And if we don't know that, our, our guts will remind us of that a couple hours later. And, and some people even you know, started with salad. They, they were really committed to this healthy thing. But what about when we have, have conflict in relationships? There's also a healthy way and an unhealthy way to address that, whether it's in our family or at work or in church. It's usually not healthy to ignore it or to talk to others about it in a slanderous way. It's not healthy to become angry or manipulative or abusive. That won't make things get any better. A healthy approach would, would include things like talking to the people that you're in conflict with, trying to understand their point of view, and being willing to make personal sacrifices for their well-being. So Paul here is kind of using the same analogy. There's a healthy way to lead the church, and there's an unhealthy way. And the key feature of the unhealthy approach is that the false teacher is teaching a different doctrine, a teaching that does not accord with godliness. And Paul doesn't spare a lot of words here when he's describing this unhealthy approach. In verse 4, he, he describes this person as full of himself. He is puffed up with conceit. He's swollen by his own opinion of himself. That, that's literally what that verse means, a person that, that's swollen or, or puffed up of, with pride. And he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He doesn't have an understanding about the truth. So his opinion of himself and his understanding of his teaching is based on something besides the person of Jesus Christ. And his confidence is, is only in himself. And his understanding, unfortunately, isn't based on truth. And then it says he has an unhealthy craving or a morbid desire for controversy and quarrels about words. And we've probably heard about it and participated in some trivial arguments in our lifetime and when I was a kid, it was the Ford versus Chevy debate. And, you know, it, it, doesn't, it didn't seem trivial to me at the time. And, of course, Chevy trucks are better. I mean, that's what my dad drives. And so it's got to be the best thing. And basically what, what defines a trivial argument is, is when you take something small and, and you make, make a big deal out of it. And so here the, the false teachers are making a big deal out of something small, out of something that really has no consequence but they have this, this unhealthy craving to keep pursuing these worthless arguments. And the smaller the issue, the, the more strongly they argue over it. And this demonstrates a lack of wisdom. They don't know the truth, they're full of themselves, and their priorities are misguided. And so they demonstrate a wisdom that is worldly. And the result of, of this unhealthy approach is attitudes that are awry. And we have that list that follows. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Jesus said in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And we see a description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
And so Paul goes on to describe that the kinds of people who develop these attitudes, those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Depraved means destroyed or, or corrupted. So instead of experiencing that the wholeness and the soundness and the, the wellness that is made possible through Jesus, they've been untouched by the gospel and their living lives of brokenness, that their minds are broken. And along with their depravity, they're deprived of the truth. They, they don't know the teaching that accords with godliness. And so their, their ignorance of God's ways, combined with their ignorance of God's intentions for how they should live, results in their inability to live in healthy relationships with others. And sin does that to a person. It causes us to become selfish in our relationships by pursuing those things that benefit ourselves and, and not seeking the good of others. It causes us to become defensive when confronted with our own failings, and it causes us to see the worst in others and to doubt their intentions to us, even when they're good. And this is an unhealthy way to live because it causes us to become more isolated instead of drawing closer to each other in relationships the way that Christ designed. So Jesus came to earth so that through his life and death and resurrection, we could experience the wholeness instead of brokenness. The problem is sometimes we don't realize our brokenness. The Pharisees were confident in their own brand of righteousness, and they felt threatened by Jesus' teaching on the new kingdom. And when they criticized Jesus for having the audacity to eat and drink with, with tax collectors and sinners, he responded in Luke 5, "'Those who are well have no need of a physician.'" but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So seeing our own unhealthiness and turning to the great physician is the first step in experiencing the wholeness that can only be found in him. And as we experience his cleansing in our lives, we can begin to live in the healthy ways that allow us to have the wisdom of God and the attitudes of love instead of the negative ones described in this passage. And then finally, the, the last phrase in, in verse 5 describes a motivation that is mistaken. As if it's not bad enough that their wisdom is absent and their attitudes are abysmal, they are motivated to, to promote this godliness by a desire for gain. That could be financial gain or just, just um, a, a gain in their reputation or power. And as we've discussed before, in, in those times it was expected and it was normal for those who preached the gospel to be compensated for their labor. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9 and explains why he turned down his right to be paid because he didn't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. But he argues that it's only right for the servant of the gospel to be reimbursed. And this is such a prevalent practice that it was in danger of being abused, as we see here. Those who taught a false gospel were motivated by a selfish desire for gain. So all in all, Paul paints a pretty bleak picture here of the, the one who, has, who would present a false gospel, who presents a different doctrine. But we don't have to look too far to see some of these things in the church today. And any, any of these elements that, that are present in the church is a tragedy. But how do we prevent this from happening? How do, how do we as a church display the glory of Christ instead of the mess of sin? 
he's alluded to part of it here in this passage, but if we look at some parallel passages, it further illustrates the answer for us. And I'd like to look at Titus 1, a few verses there. In this letter to Titus, Paul was basically doing the same thing he had to Timothy. He was instructing Titus to set things in order in Crete. And one of the keys is that the church must be committed to teaching and defending the truth. So I'll read verse, uh, starting in verse 7 of chapter 1. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Jump down to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so the false teachers in that day were religious people who were teaching religious things that were not consistent with God's truth. And it's easy enough to identify false teachers, like I said, when, when they're directly opposed to God. But the danger is when the false teachers are on the inside of the religious establishment. And we might get this false sense of security by thinking that they're only the, the television preachers who, who say anything that they need to, to to make the most money. But the false teachers can be among us. In, in 2 Peter 2, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So it's possible to have false teachers in our own churches. And false teachers lead people away from a faith that rests in the master who bought them. They promote a religion that is not based on the authority of Christ and of his written word. So they might emphasize what is felt or what makes people feel better about themselves. And the, the end point is the self. How can you arrange your life to feel better about your sin problem? The ones in the circumcision party depended on legalism. Their confidence was in their ability to manage their lives to appear better than others around them and to do the required religious things that, that dampened their guilt in their hearts. So while you may not be a legalist, it's possible to fall into the same pattern of, of self-sufficient thinking and living that makes it just a little easier to live our lives without a daily dependence on Jesus. But Jesus calls us to walk with him. In Matthew 7, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So the children of God and the children of the devil are known by their fruits. You can't read about false teachers in the Bible without also reading about their destructive fruits. By the same hand, if we're children of God, we will have fruits that are in keeping with righteousness because of the new life in Christ that is in us. The sound, the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the wholeness of the person of Christ in our lives will bear fruit to godliness. So how has Jesus changed your life? If you've not made him the master of your life, you're on an unhealthy path. If you're pursuing your own interests instead of those of Christ, you are on a wide path that leads to destruction. But if you have trusted Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, are you still walking with him on the way that leads to life? Are you growing in your knowledge of him and letting that knowledge shape the direction of your life? If the teaching of Christ leads to godliness, then we should be committed to growing in the knowledge of his teaching. And we grow in that knowledge by reading his word, by attending Sunday school class, by attending study groups, or by interacting with other Christians. And, and how much do you think you've grown in your knowledge of God in the last year? How much do you care about how much you've grown? Our children also grow in knowledge when they're led by parents who are committed to teaching them in the home and who also provide for their education not only in their education of the Bible, but in a general education in, in reading, writing, and arithmetic so that they can grow up to be people who can critically evaluate false teachings and, more importantly, be able to read the Bible with knowledge so that they can grow in wisdom and Christlikeness. You know, of all people, Christians should have the greatest hunger to be growing in knowledge, to know more about not only the Bible, but about the world in general that God has made, because it helps us understand God better. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, we can be more fruitful in his kingdom. So as each of us grow in knowledge, we should also be growing in developing the wisdom, the attitudes, and the motivation that come from Christ. And as we grow in love, our love should be growing more evident to all, and Christ will be honored. Let's have a song.